0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So what's the connection between the east end of London and the family that used to own the football pools? And how did one of London's most celebrated bare knuckle boxers end up in a mass grave in Essex? It's Saturday, the 30th of March 2013. If you're celebrating, I hope you're having a great Easter weekend. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. <laughs> okay, you know where you a are. Radical transformation. Very radical People transformation. Morally
1: outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week.
0: Seems reasonable, does not it? As
1: soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square really would at have the a gallery. place called the Kittle Hussy, you saw your so Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey.
0: What the hell is that? A <laughs> 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 man is tired of London. He's tired of London. So, life. what was the first thing that caught
1: your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's
0: it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet... what, amassing yourself in the sights. And for song, the Jewish song, community so...
1: who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from we Poland, we are doing a modern take on Morris dancing.
0: When did he think the Second Coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris. He wants to put an airport. <laughs> <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris is announced it is fatigue. Yes, the is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you yeah, know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. Hey, that's what it's about.
1: London is a modern
0: Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, I am staring down the barrel of a fake tree. I realise it's uh, in the next room here at the Whitechapel Art Gallery and I'm here with Clive Bettington. He is the chairman of the Jewish East End Celebration Society. Hi, Clive. Hello. Now, the name of the society gives away what it does, but we should say something about where we are, uh, first of all. Perhaps if we talk about the East End more generally and uh, perhaps the, the Jewish influence on the East End and then zoom right into the building we're in, which, of course, has heavy Jewish resonance. Right. Certainly, we're in this part of London, which has a very strong
1: Jewish history. Um, it's ha- also had waves of immigrants over over many centuries. Uh, the Jews, in fact, arrived in 1657 in this area, um, in, in fairly small numbers. Uh, but the area was very Jewish from then onwards, and. Um, But the largest number arrived in 1881, some 200,000 Jews arrived in 1881, and this area became solidly Jewish. There had been Irish immigrants, there had been Huguenot immigrants, but the Jews are the biggest uh, um, immigrant community ever to arrive in this part of London. It was poverty-stricken, they were poverty-stricken. Uh, and they had family contacts to this extent, and uh, uh, it became, the, the lingua franca of this area was Yiddish, in fact, they spoke a language, and they were deeply uh, resented by the existing Anglo-Jewish community, who saw them as a potential embarrassment. And uh, a burden on the community.
0: Oh, uh, let me make sure I've understood you correctly. Did you say that the the English Jewish community yes. was against the the immigration? Yes, certainly. They, they, because the they, the existing Anglo Jewish community were well established. They
1: sent their children to posh schools. They were you know they were wealthy, uh, and the last thing they wanted were a lot of poverty stricken Jews arriving from Eastern Europe, speaking a language they didn't understand, uh, and looking foreign. Uh, and um, it, it, it was thought that they should never have been allowed in the first place. And lot, a and lot of the Jewish uh, societies actually paid for some of them to go back to Eastern Europe, actually.
0: I'm presuming this is because the, uh, the, the established Jewish population then probably had to work quite hard to overcome what is, let's face it, in this country, centuries after century of uh, discrimination.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, the whole of the 19th century was the struggle for emancipation. We had the first Jewish Lord Mayor of London in 1855. We were the first uh, um, active... Uh, Jewish member of, of of the House of Commons in 1858, Baron Leonard Rothschild, and the first Jewish peerage was only 1882 as Lord Rothschild. Uh, so they had struggled f- uh, and established themselves. They become extremely wealthy, and suddenly everything was jeopardized by the arrival of these people, in, enorm- in enormous numbers, and uh, they thought they would. You know, there was no, of course, there's no welfare state in those days. They would have to pay great, large sums of money to
0: to maintain these people. Now, I don't know what the record keeping situation was back then, but is it possible to quantify or to give a sort of percentage proportion of uh, Jewish folk, new Jewish arrivals in this area?
1: Well, it's very again, it's very difficult because in those days, in the census, you don't have to put your religion down. But it's been estimated that in the 1930s, there were 200 to 250 thousand Jews in this area that's profess- according to Professor Skadelsky uh, who himself is, is, is Jewish um, and, and, but the figure might have been lower but it's, it's very difficult because names have been anglicized so you can't apply the so-called Cohen test to find out how many Jews there were but they think that was, was very heavily populated uh, there were some 30 people to a house actually uh, overcrowded dire poverty uh, But out of that incredible poverty, it produced great artists, architects, um, writers, uh, politicians, great boxers
0: uh great gangsters as well (laughs) came came from the jewish east end they were very notorious gangsters in the area we will come to gangsters in just a moment we can't let that one pass uh we passed over the rag trade though of course which was uh, phenomenal
1: exactly i mean they really basically they 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 started the great secondhand clothes dealing in in london uh and in Houndsditch you had this massive secondhand clothes market um and the poor people were able to buy, you know, better clothes for the first time, which they could clean up and wear. And you didn't have to have specially uh, bespoke clothing made for you anymore. You could buy, buy second-hand kind of clothing. You know? And, of course, um, they set up a lot of clothing business, uh, the, the, these new Jewish immigrants. And it's um, and now been taken over by the Bangladeshi. They now run a cl- the clothing industry in the East End. So it's amazing how one immigrant group has taken over the other one's uh, sort of trade. Um, but, again, they were very resourceful and... and um, Within you know, a generation or so, a lot of them had moved out to, to, to Essex or to the north, so-called Northwest Frontier, up in as far as bushy they are now, but up into Golders green edgeware. Um, and, of course, the thing that precipitated this was uh, the Second World War. I mean, uh, Stepney, as, as this area was known then, uh, was the most bombed borough of, 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 in the whole of England, actually. So the, a lot of the housing stock was destroyed. Uh, And new housing was found in these new suburbs, in Essex
0: or in Golders Green, Edgware, Hendon, those areas. Now, all of this is a matter of historical fact, but your name of your society is is the Celebration Society. Why the Celebration? What's inspired this history to be celebrated? Well, you know, the thing that... Uh, I'm not Jewish
1: nor am I from the East End <laughs> so I'm not seen as that suitable but I, I have now taken it to my heart uh, and I was act- when I discovered the East End uh, I found it a really fascinating area. Immanuel Litvinov Litvin- one of the great writers of the East End wrote, wrote his biography and he called it A Journey to a Small Planet which exactly it was, it was a planet all on its own with a this- Different language groups, different re- very different religion, um, and the people lived entirely on their own little planet and I find it fascinating these pe- these people, but the, the existing Jewish establishments uh, don't seem to appreciate this; they feel that they've left the poverty behind them, and they don 't see any reason why why it should be written about, why the existing buildings should be saved. Um, because they think Jews are successful and, and, and they see, it only as, see only the poverty. They don't understand it was a highly creative area as well. Actually, these people came over from Eastern, Eastern Europe and produced great band leaders. Almost all the great band leaders in England came, came, came from, from Eastern European heritage, people like Joe Loss and Geralda, uh, Stanley Black, all, all these people were, were East Enders. It also produced great businessmen, people like uh, Lawrence Graff, the great diamond billionaire, uh, Sir Charles Claw, the shoe manufacturer, uh, Lord Rain. Uh, they all
0: came from the, from the East End, actually. So you're still fighting that same battle the new immigrants versus the established Jewish population. What about these individuals that you mentioned, though? I, I understand the problems between those two. Groups, but what about when somebody made it who came from a more deprived background? Did they pretend that they had never heard of the poor Jewish East End? Yes, certainly. We have
1: that problem, actually. Families who went on to become get titles, and that's some of them want to forget all about the East End, because, the, you know, they did. I mean, there's a man called Colonel Seifert, who was a great architect in the 1970s. He, he, he did some rather ugly buildings in London. Um, and to the end of his day, he never mentioned the East End. And his daughter said, why not? He said, you know, was, every time we moved, we moved even to, to even worse accommodation. And I don't want to mention it at all. But, but again, there are some people who are proud of it. Uh, the writer Bernard Copps, who grew up in the East End, uh, and who's a, lot, a lot of his, his poetry and his plays are set in the East End. Uh, he 's still very proud. He doesn't live here anymore, but he's still very proud of his East End connections. So some of these people, you're outing them as East Enders. <laughs> yes. yes, I know certainly. Well, I know they were. It was the, very, the East End was the cradle of Anglo Jewish com- community, uh, and most Jews come
0: from this area. Uh, even those who, who who don't really want to know about us, they come from this area actually. Let's uh, let's dig into some of these individuals that you're mentioning. And actually, I remember reading about a boxer called Mendoza, who sounded like a fantastic character. Yes, certainly.
1: I mean, that's just one of the many great boxers this area produced. Uh, Daniel Mendoza uh, was born in this area, just just off uh, Petticoat Lane, um, and he, he invented scientific boxing. He was known as the father of scientific boxing. He was quite small. He was was only five foot six and weighed eleven stone, but he could take on men much larger than himself, mainly because of his his method of scientific boxing. Um, And he became the the most famous British boxer really of all times. Uh, He came to sticky end. He took to drinking quite heavily, and uh, he was always in debt towards the end of his life. But um, difficult to to be difficult to be quite so scientific
0: if you're half cut.
1: Yes, I know. Certainly, that's true. What's happened to a lot of them. But he had a whole host of the these uh jewish boxers pe- people like uh dad dutch sam elias isaac biton uh abie belasco they were all c- his contemporaries actually they all became great boxers it was all bare knuckle boxing in those days but but in the 20th century of course we had we had um world champions people like uh, ted kid lewis jack Kid Berg, uh, great british champions like harry misler uh, harry mason um whole strings endless full oloski they were all very famous boxers actually Uh, and it produced produced them in this area and again it was the established Anglo jury who who made them take up boxing they founded these boxing clubs in the east end they used used the terrible phrase they had to iron out the ghetto bend a lot of these immigrants suffered from uh, deficiency diseases like rickets um, and they thought by taking up boxing and this manly sport it could straighten up their physiques and give them manly physiques so it couldn't be an embarrassment any longer
0: I believe this is something we're facing at the moment with uh, new arrivals from I think p- particularly parts of Asia and the Indian subcontinent and, and places like that where uh, certain illnesses are re-establishing themselves in the country as they come across with uh, less affluent immigrants yes certainly of
1: course you know, uh, I mean tuberculosis has again become a very big factor uh, in Tower Hamlets and the joining boroughs but again uh, among the Jews tuberculosis particularly among the the uh, people who worked in these sweatshops and the cobblers and that uh, had a very high rate of of, of tuberculosis actually it was very very common again the whole, the whole idea of the Anglo-Jewish community was to make sure these these diseases were conquered and uh, Uh, They gave uh, the London Hospital particularly was was a private institution those days, and it was financed by the great Jewish millionaires, including Lord Rothschild. They gave large sums of money to to the London Hospital, had
0: kosher wards and everything to treat them. Actually, Um, well, that's interesting. What what about the level of segregation? And and you talked about boxing clubs, for example, were there specifically Jewish boxing clubs where they kept apart in some way from other? Uh, ethnic groups
1: yes certainly i mean they, they, they were i mean p- people deny it now but uh the east end was seen as a ghetto not not in the european sense there were no walls or anything but there was certainly a mental ghetto and uh, many jews uh, never left the east end going west the allgate pump was seen as a great great adventure
0: so uh, well let me understand was that about the jewish people staying within a self-defined ghetto or about other people staying outside of that perimeter no I think
1: it was the Jews came with inside and uh, a defined ghetto they, they they didn't speak English very few of them actually learned English it was only after the Second World War that they were compelled to speak English because they moved out of the area uh, but it's still very much the lingua franca until about 1940 actually uh, but very few people speak L- Yiddish now but in those days they did actually so you'll speak you learn, read about people like Mark Gertler, the painter, Rosenberg, and their parents didn't speak a word of English, and they never mixed in the English community. And, of course, it has a similarity with some members of the Bangladesh community today, and a lot of the women who lead these very isolated lives, actually. And they, they, they're not really equipped to go and mix with the, with the, with the population at, at large, as it were. Well. They, so they've got a kind of
0: ghetto going on there as well. Well, Emmanuel Litvinoff is a very interesting figure in terms of his writings and his, his sort of persona. He, he, in a way, embodies a particular outlook and a particular time in the East End. I've had the privilege of meeting him, actually, before he, he passed. Could we say something about him? Yes, certainly. Emmanuel Litvinoff was an amazing man. He died
1: two years ago at the age of 96. Unfortunately, towards the end of his life, he had Alzheimer's. And again, like many of the East European East End writers, he... Um, is largely forgotten about now but he, he, he wrote an enormous number of novels uh, he was very much obsessed with the Holocaust he wrote uh, uh, poems for survivors about the Holocaust um, and of course I think he wrote the greatest biography uh, about the, uh, of anyone from the Jewish East End a journey through a small planet where he, he describes the, his poverty uh, in the East End he grew up in a tenement house uh, just off Cheshire Street uh, and he made a conscious decision really to quit the East End and really renounce his Jewish heritage because he felt he felt ashamed of, of that, that sort of Yiddish background not, not just the area then the whole, the whole his whole Yiddish background he felt, he felt ashamed about it and he decided to become a British playwright and not a, a Jewish playwright um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's quite interesting but he, you know, he's, you know, he wrote a great deal about the Holocaust he didn't renounce his Jewish heritage as such it was just the, the poverty I think it, it wears you down after a while you, you grew up among the poverty I and mean, Bernard Copps himself also grew up in tremendous poverty actually uh, which blighted his life to a great extent and, and it's only now I think that he's having a really happy time he's, got, he's quite comfortably off and he's got children all surrounding him and he's, he's writing new plays all the time, novels, poetry and we do as much as, you know, as possible to make sure that he's,
0: he's, he's listened to and heard all the time. Uh, when I met Litvinov, it was in a synagogue just up the road here, which sort of suggested to me that he didn't manage entirely to shake off the, the, the area. No, I don't think he'd ever been inside a synagogue. He was actually a communist in
1: his earlier life. <laughs> and I think the, 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 referring to the time we launched his um, his biography in, in paperback, A Journey through a Small Planet. This, this was at the, the paperback launch of his yeah, that's biography? Exactly. Yeah. My organisation did that launch, actually. And he turned up and... Um, it was quite odd, because he, I said to him, which we wanted to look at his life uh, as well, and we said, now which Yiddish songs do you want us to play for you as your birthday? And he said, Yiddish? I don't know any Yiddish. Red flag, is <laughs> there? And then we played some Yiddish songs for him, and he, he started singing along in Yiddish, actually. When you got him on his own, he, he, he was extremely lucid and uh, very articulate. He, he sounded very much like an upper-class Englishman. He developed
0: this, this English accent. Um, Litvinov brings us into the realm of poetry and, of course, Isaac Rosenberg is commemorated on a plaque just outside the, the building we're in let's, let's talk about the building first and then about Rosenberg
1: certainly. we're in what was the, the Whitechapel Library it's all now part of the Whitechapel Art Gallery Uh, And both institutions were founded by a formidable battle axe called Dame Henrietta Barnett Who used to go to the rich and force them to hand over money to her to build her various institutions And this is the Whitechapel Library Uh, It was founded specifically for the Jews actually They had an enormous collection of of Judaica in this library All the librarians were Jewish And 90% of the the, uh, users were Jewish actually uh, and it became known as the University of the Ghetto and a lot of these Jewish intellectuals in this area, people like Jacob Bronowski uh, Arnold Wesker uh, would come and use this library and Isaac Rosenberg um, uh, was actually taught to learn poetry write poetry in, in this library it's quite amazing when you think of it nowadays um, so uh, Was he an autodidact or did somebody uh, mentor him? Yes certainly a man called Maury Dana, who was a librarian you. Uh, Said to him, "I'll teach you how to write poetry." And they sat down together. And uh, uh, because I mean, he, he's now recognised as probably the greatest poet of the first world British poet of the First World War. Uh, and he was so different from the other poets of the First World War, British poets of the First World War. He came from a non-English speaking background. His parents never learned to, to speak English at all. Uh, he grew up in intense poverty. He had a very indifferent education, unlike a lot of the, most of the public school uh, poets of the First World War. Um, and he was very sickly. He was very short. He was he had to fight in the Bantam so called Bantam regiments in the First World War. He was short and I think the evidence was that he had incipient tuberculosis. So he had this very ill and he was deeply depressed his parents hated one another Um, and he overcame all these terrible disabilities and his poetry is quite extraordinary actually and we're in the process now of putting up a statue to him which unfortunately won't be in the east end it'll be in Birkbeck College where he studied for a while it's next to the Slade School of Art where he studied to be
0: an artist so even in uh, commemoration somebody somewhere along the line is denying the east end element
1: well, we, we, we tried to have a, a site in the East End, but we, we couldn't find a secure site. Mm-hmm. And the, thing, the last thing we wanted to do is put up a statue which might be vandalized or stolen, which is happening to a lot of statues in the East End. Uh, so we found a site in, in Breckbeck College where it's going to have 24-hour security. Um, and it'll enliven a rather... Boring Square, Torrington Square, which has become a sort of glass nightmare. So, so the statue will enliven it, and we wanted it unveiled on the 25th of November, 2014. His birthday. Um, he was born in Bristol in 1890. Uh, died in the Western Front in 1918. And his body was only really found eight years afterwards. They they think it was his body. So he's buried in a grave marked Isaac Rosenberg with a star of David on it. But there's some doubt as to whether it's even his body actually. And of
0: course, he wasn't an officer, unlike a lot of
1: other poets of the First no, World he, War. he served in the Bantam regiments and went through the lines. So, so some of the terrible descriptions he gives of the suffering are his own experiences of of the, of the, the fighting actually. And he's got a terrible scene where he describes how. Uh, wheels from a, from a gun carriage go go over a soldier's head and crush out his brains. Actually, it, it is quite desperately sad. Actually, but he's it, his personal experience. We have a. Piece
0: of his poetry here, I think.
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, when we put up his statue, it's not going to be—he's to be—he's not going to have a military uniform. I we thought all that might be too provocative. People might think it's related to the, to the Afghan War or the Iraq War. So he's going to be dressed in in a, in, a, in a in a greatcoat which he normally wore and an Alpine hat which he He was very fond of, and he's going to be reading a book of poetry. But around the base of the uh, statue will be the, the following words from his great poem, "The Break of Day in the Trenches." The darkness crumbles away into the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer, sardonic rat. As I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear, a droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you will do the same to a German soon. No doubt it will be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green. Between it seems your inwardly grin as you pass. Strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chance than you for life. Bonds to the whims of murder Sprawled in the bowels of the earth The torn fields of France What do you see in our eyes At the shrieking iron flame Hurled through the still heavens What quaver, what heart aghast Poppies whose roots are in men's veins Drop and are ever dropping But mine in my ear is safe Just a little white with the dust is a character who's really been largely forgotten by Britain in, in general and by the Anglo-Jewish community in particular and, and so in raising the money for the statue we also helping him to raise his profile trying to educate people as to, to his poetry which is really quite abstract in comparison to, to those of, of Rupert Brooke and, and, and Wilfred Owen but some people now think he's the greatest poet of the First World War uh, Paul Fussell, the American who wrote the great book The Great War in Modern Memory described uh, The Break of Day in the Trenches as the greatest poem of the First World War actually. It, you know, it's, it's, his poetry to a large extent is quite abstract Actually, it's not quite as obvious as, as Wolford Owens but it's, once you get to, to read it uh, and you understand his life it, 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 it makes sense
0: yes it is rather less constructed and I think it works no, better in that,
1: in that example for that it is quite complex, and even great, we've had great actors reading it. Uh, but the person who reads it best is, is Isaac Rosenberg's nephew, Bernard Winnick. He's 85 now. He's the chairman of the Rosenberg Literary Trust. Don't you? And he'll be reading it on... We're having an event here on the 7th of April, and Bernard Winnick
0: will be reading it then. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Let's talk about London more broadly, and uh, I'm wondering whether you have counterparts in other parts of London, or are you the only celebration society for the Jewish community? Well, there are a lot of Jewish cultural uh, groups
1: in in London. Actually, there's the Jewish Music Institute, the Jewish Museum, um, the Jewish
0: Cultural Center, uh, but we're the only ones who really do the Jewish East End, actually. Um, you're, you're not short of uh, people doing tours and all that stuff. We've had Rachel Kolsky on the show uh, no, no, not so, so long uh, ago, for example. There's there's a lot yeah, of interest. A
1: lot of people do tours, but. Um, uh, I think mine are in greater detail, actually, than theirs, actually. Uh, I'm not trying to show what it is because I, you know, I, I tend to approach things in a much more academic way. Uh, and I think sometimes people think mine are too academic. Uh, but what I'm desperate is for people to know the facts. So I don't do just an East End walk. I do things like I look at the rise of Zionism in the East End. I look at the literary figures, the artistic figures. I do the, a special walk on Box to the East End. Uh, and none of the other guys
0: do it as specifically as that. Actually, uh, we haven't talked yet about the gangster element.
1: Oh right, certainly yes. I know that's that's an element that, uh, the the Jewish community like to forget about. Actually, uh, I'm not surprised. But um, uh, and the most notorious of the gangsters in the city. I can imagine you know this was an area of great poverty. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a bit like the Wild West, and people had to. Uh, had, to, had to had to make money out of it, and the whole range of these extraordinary characters. And the most notorious was a man called Jack Spot. His real name was Jack Comitiera, but he's called Spot because he had a spot on the side of his neck. And whenever there's trouble, he was always on the spot. And, uh, and he was quite a ruthless man. He ran protection rackets. Yes, he ran these protection rackets. Um, he ran illegal gambling houses. This was all in about the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And he was severely injured in, in a fight with another gangster in, in Soho, actually, when a, when a Jewish uh, storekeeper in Soho, a woman called Mrs. Hyams, hit him across the head with a, with, a, with a sugar scoop, which cracked open his skull and he went into decline. I thought it was interesting, as, but by then he had, he had lost his power. But um, he's remembered as, 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 as one of the most notorious. Uh, but another two brothers, another two notorious gangsters, uh, and the Jewish community won't recognize them as Jewish, were the Cray brothers, actually. They were of Jewish descent. They weren't wholly Jewish, but they were of Jewish descent, actually. And they were very proud of their Jewish background. Their, their grandfather's known as Jewish Cray or Crazy Cray, actually. He stepped with a crowbar under his pillow. And they were very fond of their Jewish background. They would, uh, Reg, Reggie Cray would often listen to Thought for the Day when, when Rabbi Grin, the great survivor of Auschwitz, would talk. And he was deeply impressed. And he, he was a close friend of Sophie Tucker, the great American singer who came to, to, to London quite often. And he, he was a very close friend of two, two boxers, Jack Kidberg and Ted Kid lewis Again, boxing is very much involved with gangsterism, actually. Um, some of the boxing promoters, I won't mention some uh, name, uh, were, were involved in, in fixing matches and illegal gambling as well. I mean, but again, boxing has always had a link with gangsterism, actually. Um, and, and there's a whole range of extraordinary characters. There's a man called Ike Bokada in about 1910, he used to dress as a cowboy, a you know, larger than life character, and walk down Brick Lane uh, with two guns in his holster. In, in, and there were live guns, actually. He, was quite, he eventually went to prison. Aki Bukhaida, an extraordinary character, He's a Dutch Jew. Um, it, it, it's quite amazing, actually. But, you know, there's, um, it, as I said, there's l- great links between boxing and, uh, and the gangster
0: profession, actually. Gangster family, somebody like Jack Spot, would he have been part of a, an organisation that was made up of Jewish folk or a family of Jewish criminals? No, he he had his dear old mother who, every
1: time he came out of prison, the only person who loved him in the end was his mother, actually. She'd welcome him home and probably make some soup for him and all that sort of thing. But his main uh, lackeys, his henchmen, were the boys he grew up with in in Fieldgate Street, in Romford Street, where where he lived. Uh, There was a one called uh, Moshi Blue Balls Cohen, actually, who was one of his, his henchmen, but they'd grown up as children together, actually and uh, Jack Spot was the, the sort of head of them, and of course the Cray brothers had their whole establishment, uh, they're not only two brothers, they had their drivers and their various henchmen as well actually but you know, again, you, they, they you know, tried to make a living, it's, 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 it was difficult in those days, uh, the poverty was dire, I mean you know, it wasn't just sort of failure to, to, to afford to designer clothing it was, you know, where would the next meal come from, these gigantic families you know, up to 20 children
0: sometimes actually. Yeah, we, we really haven't got a clue in the East End Now, what it was like—a very short span of time ago. Yes, certainly. I mean, you know, uh, one of our members
1: of my society in the 1980s lived in Stepney Green, and their flat was infested with rats and lice. Actually, they lived in this intense poverty. You know, in in the 1980s, about 30 years ago, they were living in this this terrible poverty. But it was—it was was incredible. There were no jobs. They desperately try and get some jobs. bernard Cops's father never had a job his mother to try and take in washing and all she could afford every day was was it was, was a cabbage a day actually um to keep on he had to go to the um uh jewish board of guardians for his clothing and of course being such a short man they always gave him long trousers and he, he remembers walking around all the time with his trousers dragging in the dust actually and they used to have soup kitchens established by the rich families and then uh, and that was their only sustenance for the day they'd go to the soup kitchens they would get a a, a, a tin of soup with, with a junk of bread, and and that was really keeping them going. Actually, and and there was just you know there was just there was
0: no money at all. Actually, there's a certain symmetry going on there in the house where washing is brought in. You need wind to dry the washing, and lots of cabbages being eaten. That also kind of ties together somehow. Does <laughs> I I just I, I imagine. I mean. Uh, uh, I mean Bernard Copps is very
1: funny he, he's always very articulate and good fun actually and he said he used to walk around all day just farting because they had so many cabbages every day it was the same thing they, they could not look f- and the strange thing is his mother's sister was married to, to the Zetter Pools family they were the uh, football Pools family and Mrs Zetter would, and every few months Mrs Zetter would turn up in a Rolls Royce wind down the window the, the chauffeur would sound the horn she'd hand a tension to Mrs. Copps and then then shoot
0: off again in a Rolls Royce actually uh, let's uh, talk about you a little more Because uh, the, the the fact that you mentioned Right at the beginning uh, Is that you're not Jewish yourself And you're not an East Ender Have you ever been an East Ender?
1: No, never <laughs> I grew up in South Africa actually and uh, But I'm uh, very keen on conservation actually And when I discovered the East End I thought it was a fascinating area and there were still four surviving synagogues, and there were surviving buildings with Jewish links. There are five cemeteries, very historical cemeteries in this area, Jewish cemeteries, including the oldest Jewish cemetery in England. So, Which, so is, which is which one? It's the Velo Sephardic, next to Queen Mary University. It goes back to 1657, when the Jews first arrived under Oliver Cromwell. Uh, a lot of these cemeteries are in a very bad state of disrepair. So, we bring a lot of pressure to bear. We're trying to save the remaining synagogues, having them listed. Um, and in the building we're in now, of course, the Whitechapel Library, we have events in here to commemorate the, the Jewish literary history of this area. And the, library, the, the, the art gallery um, uh, directors are very keen that we should go on using this. To, to commemorate the Jewish heritage of this building
0: You're being very modest by not mentioning the fact that it was down to yourself and your organisation and context that this building has been preserved in, its, yes, that in this of, state It's not something I've mentioned quite a lot of but uh, I remember the Victorian Society as well and, and I,
1: I notified them about this building so they took a keen interest in this and As you can see, nothing's really been altered in this building. It's it's, it's grade two listed
0: now. Everything had to remain the same. A few alterations were allowed. Um, So the the Whitechapel Art Gallery was able to expand, but without ruining the the, the external or internal. There's definitely wonderful Victorian architecture, the uh, the arts and crafts architecture. And the library dates from 1894, and the gallery
1: dates from uh, 1901, actually. Uh, But they're both sort of arts and crafts buildings, actually. Very fine buildings, and they're still, yeah, actually. And they can't touch them, really.
0: (laughs) Now, the the, the reason I I sort of brought the conversation around to yourself is because I know that... uh people who are born and brought up in the East End are very proud and um, I almost want to say defensive of their traditions and their the the way of life their history and so forth I can imagine that any ethnic or religious group would be of course proud of its traditions and I just wonder whether you ever meet resistance in either of those areas by being external to, to those initially
1: oh no certainly certainly i've, I've had I, I won't mention the man's name <laughs> but when i formed the organization i did a guidebook for the area as well actually and this dreadful man phoned me up he's jewish from the east end and he said uh why, why are you doing this he said you're not jewish you're not from the east end mind your own bloody business actually so uh but again that's been very much the minority and uh you didn't realize that I'm South African born and South Africans tend to interfere in everything actually <laughs> <laughs> they think they can do everything better than anyone else so, we, so you know uh, I think we've done a lot of good work we've, 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 we've saved buildings we've put up a blue plaque to, to Daniel Mendoza uh, uh, at the spot where he was born uh, I'm sorry the spot where he was buried they'd moved his body in the 1970s threw it away in a communal, put it in a communal grave in Essex and threw away the gravestone. so, so on the spot where he had been buried in the, the Nova Sephardic uh, c- cemetery we put up a plaque with, with him in relief um, to commemorate the fact that he'd been buried there. Why, why did they do that? Well, they, the uh, Sephardic uh, community claimed they were short of money. And so they sold the cemetery, most of the cemetery was sold to Queen Mary University. So they had to dig up 7,000 bodies, uh, including that of Daniel and And Benjamin Disraeli, the grandfather of the, of the great prime minister, was dug up. And they threw away the tombstones and threw the bodies into a communal grave in Essex, actually. So it was just act of total stupidity and vandalism, uh, because he's you know he's recognised as one of the greatest British boxers of all time. Actually.
0: We should look ahead, I think, at right. uh, what the what, what the next couple of years perhaps holds for J E E C S.
1: <laughs> yes, no, certainly. I mean. you yeah, uh, uh, we're rather short of members of our committee, so we, we are restricted by what we can do, and we're short of money, of course. Uh, but we do have ambitious schemes, actually. Uh, this year is our 10th anniversary of, of our foundation, and we're hoping to have a big event at the Troxy Cinema uh, in the commercial road uh, we're taking part in, in a big Cockney festival in, in July
0: now hold on your eyebrows went all over the place saying <laughs> Cockney festival, what's, what's up
1: with the Cockney festival <laughs> well I, do, I don't know how you interpret Cockney and that sort of thing, so we're looking around for Jewish Cockneys
0: um, does, uh, does it all get a bit hokey?
1: well I suppose it does but again that's, that's, uh, that's life really, uh, but I know there are people who recognise those Jewish Cockneys um, people like Bud Flanagan uh, you had Bernard Breslau you had uh, uh, Alfie Bass and you know and, and amazing most of the um, pearly kings and queens are Jewish they have a strong Jewish tradition in the pearly kings and queens actually because uh, a lot of them were in the clothing industry and you know they got these little pearl buttons from, from working in the clothing industry so even today a lot of the pearly kings and queens are Jewish actually so, so we're doing that for the council and uh, and and uh, then next year we are helping to organise the hundredth anniversary of the foundation of the Oxford and Georges Club, which is a very prominent boys' club in the East End, and uh, that's going to be commemorated in the Troxy Cinema as well. The Troxy Cinema is one of the great centre of entertainment for for the Jewish community. It's a Commercial Road, and uh, this magnificent cinema, you know, magnificent staircase made out of onyx, uh, it's got marble and faience. And, and we're going to have a whole commemoration of people flying in from all over the world who were at the Oxford and George's Club. They're coming from Israel, America, Canada, South Africa. And a lot of them in the 80s and 90s, they're flying in. And we're going to have a, have a
0: sort of knees up. I, I suppose this must be a feature then of your work as, as the Jewish population dwindles or has dwindled and continues to do so in the East End. Your, your membership and the people who remember the Jewish East End uh, must be advancing in years. You yeah, certainly, uh, certainly, that's the real problem of the synagogues. There are four synagogues left, but their
1: average age of the of the members is eighty-seven. Actually, so oh. <laughs> one synagogue lost four four members in a month. Actually, they died in the, in, the, in their nineties. So that's a problem. Actually, so, but what we're trying to do is, of course, interest the children and grandchildren of, of the people who once lived here to try and rediscover their their, their their family roots. We have a lot of those people come over from America and Australia. And, and they have addresses, and they want to know about it. And so we give advice, and I take guided tours around. And, uh, and, and I see it not only as something for the Jewish community, but for the British community. I think the Jewish East End was a very vital part of British history. Uh, these, these, these very creative people came over and contributed a great deal to, to, to British life. They, they weren't a burden on the, on, on, on the, on the British taxpayer. They, they, they worked very hard, and, and uh, they established themselves. Um, uh, in, in this amazing way as, as, as an example to other immigrant groups as to how to, how to operate,
0: get things done. And there's uh, a magazine, of course, The Cable. And w- what's the website, finally, uh, for people who are interested in uh, pa- perhaps perhaps attending or finding out more?
1: Right, certainly. We, yes, we've got The Cable, a magazine, which is absolutely outstanding, if I may say so myself. But <laughs> it's not; I'm not the editor. We've got an editor who's a former editor of the Financial Times. So it's done in a very professional way. We have stories by all kinds of people about events in the East End and personalities. Um, and the website is www.jeeks.org.uk. And we have all series of events. Like so we've got an event coming up to 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 honour the life of Wolf Mankiewicz, another one of these great figures from the East End, who was a film director, a writer, playwright, uh, and a world authority on Wedgwood porcelain. Actually, so, so, quite extraordinary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Clark Beddington, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you very much <laughs> indeed. Thanks much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest Clive Bettington. Thanks also to Mike Patterson of London Historians and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Inch by inch Waiting for the river's cave. Straining for the blue waves Calling from the shore
1: Sunlight rave the heart of
0: anyone. Pray and please for this palace of the open sea.